So, um, yeah, good morning. Great to see everybody here. This morning we begin a new, start a new series entitled Sent, which is exploring how Jesus uh, went about his mission and how that shapes in turn our mission. And we're going to be starting this morning with a conversation I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's a conversation that Jesus has with a woman at a well which is described in John's Gospel, chapter 4. Now, this conversation is a truly remarkable one. Not only does Jesus give a masterclass in personal evangelism, but it leads to a lot of people putting their trust in him. But I think that there's more going on in this story than meets the eye, and uh, that it's actually it's part of a greater story that John is unfolding, and it's a story about a bridegroom, and his bride. So my title this morning is A Woman, A Well, and A Wedding. I thought maybe I could get away with just summarizing it because it's quite a lengthy passage and we've got quite a bit to get through before the kids come in, but the details are such a vital part of the story that uh, I'm just going to read it. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading from uh, John, John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So a little bit of competition going on there as far as John's disciples are concerned. When the Lord learned of this, he he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go back, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, yeah, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, which was nearby, on this mountain. Um, But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, or Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. What a moment that must have been. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, "What what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him some food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, four months more and then harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans came from the town, uh, from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Wow, what a story. Maybe you're thinking right now, well, I see a woman and I see a well, but, but where's the wedding? I'm going to come to that uh, in a bit. But first of all, let's, let's take a look at the woman. What, what do we know about her? Well, first of all, we know that she's a Samaritan. That doesn't mean that she runs a helpline for people who are at the end of their rope. It's just a quick bit of background here. After their glory days under kings David and Solomon, which was about 930 years or so before Jesus, the nation of Israel split in two. Without even holding a referendum, the northern tribes declared independence, and thereafter they became two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom as Judea. So then a couple of hundred years after that, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern tribes of Israel and carted them off elsewhere. And in their place, they populated the land with some non-Jewish people from other parts of their empire. You can read all about this in 2 Kings chapter 17. And the land became known then as Samaria after the main city. Of course, not 
all of the Israelites had been removed, and over time those who were left intermarried with the non-Jewish incomers, and what they ended up with was a, with a, a religion that was a bit of a pick and mix. It, uh, it was a mixture of, of Jewish beliefs. They held to the, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, but they also incorporated a lot of beliefs and, and practices from the other pagan nations. So known as the, the Samaritans, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was near where this took place. And, and they claimed that that was the true temple as opposed to the temple in Jerusalem. So many of us will be familiar with the story of the, about that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. And of course, the reason that that story had such power was because to the Jews in Judea, the Samaritans were a bad lot. They looked down on them, they rejected their religion as corrupt, and the animosity worked both ways. And as a result of this, the reason I'm telling you all this is that as a result of this animosity, as a general rule, the Jews avoided traveling through the land of the Samaritans. And, and to get to Galilee, what they would do was they would cross the Jordan and take the longer route round to get to Galilee and back over the Jordan again. And it was a journey that would take about twice as long. Here's a little map that will help you understand that. So you can see at the, at the bottom part of the map, you've got Judea with Jerusalem, the capital, and some of the other cities. And then you've got in the middle, Samaria. It even mentions, it mentions Sychar, Mount Gerizim, and then you've got Galilee just up above that. So they would have to cross the Jordan and go around and back across the Jordan at the, at the other top. Now, just as a matter of interest, if we look at the same area today, we've got another map here, we see that a big part of the area that was known in Jesus' time as Samaria is now known as the West Bank. So it just helps us to clock sometimes that some disputes go back a long way. Okay, thank you. We just The point is, this is the point. When Jesus said that he had to go, or when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it wasn't the lack of an alternative. It was because he was sent to them. This was a missional moment in the life of Jesus. And later on, we see he tells his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was there on purpose. It wasn't a coincidence that he meets this woman at the well on that day. The second thing we're told is that this woman has had multiple husbands. On account of this, it's generally assumed that she is a woman of ill repute. Um, that's often what you'll find. That I, I just find myself, I don't know why, but I just kind of feel like I want to stick up for her a little bit. I feel that we make a lot of assumptions about her. And the reality is, perhaps her circumstances were more complicated than that. A number of commentators propose that maybe she'd been widowed all these times. But, you know, five times would start to look a bit suspicious, wouldn't it? But, um, you know, divorce in those days, a man could divorce a wife for very, very minor reasons. And it maybe wasn't all her fault. It maybe wasn't all her choice. There was maybe as much pain as shame for her in the circumstances of her life. But however, it all worked out. The point is, at this stage, she would not have been seen as a good marriage prospect. Hold on to that thought, because it's a key to understanding, I think, the story. 
Now, for a single Jewish rabbi to start a conversation with her would have been, in the eyes of most Jews, this would have been an absolutely shocking thing for him to do. So no wonder the disciples are surprised when they come back and find him chatting with her because Jesus here is crossing major social, cultural, religious boundaries. So at the very least, the least thing we can draw from this story is that it's a clear sign that being on a mission with Jesus, which is what we are, means engaging with people that we wouldn't naturally have much in common with. People who see the world quite differently to the way that we see it. People that others may look down on. But I think there's, there's a lot more than that going on here. So let's, let's just see where this conversation takes place. It takes place at a well. Now, of course, in those days, people didn't have running water coming into their homes. That was a, a luxury they could hardly have imagined. They had to get their water from a well. And that's what this woman is doing there. Now, John says that it's the sixth hour. Commentators disagree on whether John is using the Jewish timekeeping system, which would make this midday, or the Roman timekeeping system, which would make it 6 p.m. I'm not going to go into all the arguments for and against that. Personally, I think that midday is more likely, and that's an unusual time for someone to be coming to a well to get water, which lends weight to the idea that she was just trying to avoid maybe the snide remarks and the condemning looks of some of the other women. But, but we'll see in a minute that maybe another reason that John is very keen to tell us what time of day it is. So here we are. Jesus and the disciples have been walking all morning. They're tired. They're th- hungry. They're thirsty. The disciples have gone off looking for a Greg's. And Jesus waits by the well. Only this isn't just any well. This I was going to say, this is a Marxist. No, it's not. (laughs) This is Jacob's well. It is a significant site in salvation history. The woman refers to Jacob as our father Jacob. And though the Jews would have strenuously denied it, the Samaritans saw themselves as the descendants of the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, who, of course, is the son of Jacob, or Israel. as as God called Jacob and his descendants. So Jesus opens up the conversation by asking the woman to give him a drink. She's shocked. She says, what are you playing at? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. You shouldn't be doing this. And, And Jesus then offers to give her living water. Now, this can simply be understood as a term used to describe running water as opposed to the still water at the bottom of a well. And tradition had, this isn't in the Bible, but tradition had it that, um, that Jacob had miraculously turned the well into a spring that ran for several years with fresh water. And that may be what's behind her question, are you, you're offering to give me this running water, are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, of course, Jesus is greater <laughs> than Jacob, In fact, he's the one to whom Jacob points, and he's offering water that can not just satisfy her thirst, but will quench the thirst in her soul. And it's a a thirst that only he can satisfy. And the gift of God that he's talking about, of course, is the indwelling spirit who is described like 
living water that, that bubbles up, that runs within us. And of course, Jesus is the spring, the fountain from which this living water flows. And the objective of mission is not to convince people of certain facts about God, but to, to help them to come to Jesus in order to receive this living water. And you know, just like the woman in our story, people have all kinds of questions about God. And of course, there is a place for trying to engage with those questions. But ultimately, the big questions of life will only find their answer in Jesus. So when this woman tells him that when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything, Jesus just comes straight out with the truth. I am he. This is the moment, this is incredible, this is the moment that, choose, that Jesus chooses to declare himself openly, not to the religious leaders, but to this troubled Samaritan woman with a painful past that she may well be ashamed of. And that brings us to the third element in our story, which is a wedding. What you need to understand is that in the Bible, there is a history of significant biblical figures finding their future bride at a well. In other words, wells lead to weddings. That's the way it works. So when Abraham sends his servant to find a bride for Isaac, where does he meet Rebekah? At a well. When Moses meets his future bride Zipporah, where does he meet her? I'll tell you, it's at a well. It is. You can check it out for yourself. Exodus chapter 2. And of course, it's at a well that Jacob meets his future wife, Rachel. And guess what time of day it was? It was the middle of the day. Genesis 29, 7. You can check it out. Maybe the reason that John is letting us know what time of day it is isn't so much to make a point about the woman as to make a point about Jesus and who he is and what he's doing. And that he's the one to whom all those previous stories point. He is the true Israel of God through whom all the promises will be fulfilled. So to any Jewish observer, these parallels would have been striking because in their mind, woman plus well leads to a wedding. So it's a big hint that this story is part of a bigger story. And in many ways, the story of the whole Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament is a love story. God is the bridegroom. His people are the bride. Their relationship is a, like a marriage covenant that calls for both parties to be faithful to one another. And sin is not just a matter of breaking the rules. It's a betrayal of the relationship. It's a kind of adultery. And the story of Israel in the Old Testament is one of repeated unfaithfulness. But despite this, God refuses to give up his bride. And he promises time and again that one day her sins will be forgiven and a new marriage covenant will be established with her. And that is what Jesus came to do. Only the covenant that he is about to establish is no longer only with one people, but with all the peoples of the world gathered together in one people, one church, which is his bride. So if we just look at John's storyline so far, we have in chapter 2 the account of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine, not just a few bottles, but they reckon about 180 gallons. 
People often wonder, why would Jesus choose to launch his ministry in this way? It seems just a bit trivial. It could be healing people or casting out demons. Why does he do this? Well, at a Jewish wedding at that time, whose responsibility is it to provide the wine? Answer, the bridegroom. So his first miracle is a kind of declaration of who Jesus is. He is the bridegroom God come in person to restore his bride, and it's a sign that points to the wedding banquet at the end of the age. Then in the next chapter, he, he relates how the disciples of John the Baptist complain to him that Jesus is beginning to attract bigger crowds than him. And what does John the Baptist say? John chapter 3, verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. John is drawing deeply here on Old Testament prophecy and identifies himself as the friend of the bridegroom, which is another way of saying the best man. And in Jewish custom, it was the job of the best man, or the shoshbin, as they called him, to bring the bride to the bridegroom. And that's how John sees his role. He's calling God's people to repentance in preparation for the coming bridegroom, Messiah. So when we read chapter 4 in the light of what comes before it in the trajectory of John's story, it becomes a window to this bigger story of what God is doing. And, And I really think that when Jesus confronts gently this woman with her history of multiple relationships, he's not condemning her or shaming her. He is speaking to her tenderly, revealing to her that he knows her personally and intimately, and helping her to face and acknowledge her sin. Because you know, our sin doesn't stop Jesus from loving us, but it's only as we acknowledge the truth about ourselves that we can receive the living water that he longs to give. But here's the thing, that for me makes this story so extraordinary. This woman's personal story is also the story of her people. If you read 2 Kings 17, you will find seven... It's like just as she had multiple husbands, so were the Samaritan people known for their worship of multiple male deities. And those deities were called Baals or Baals. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. And that is the Canaanite word for Lord or husband. And if you read 2 Kings 17, you will find seven of these Baals identified that were worshipped by the people who inhabited Samaria, but two of them are goddesses. So if that's the case, that leaves five Baals or husbands that they worshipped. Now in time, they realized it was just, they wanted to kind of cover their bases and thought it was a good idea to worship the God of the land that they were in as well. And so they included Yahweh in their worship practices, but they were not wedded to him. They were not in a covenant relationship with him to the exclusion of these other so-called gods. He was not their husband. So Jesus is here, I think, not just, for, not just for this woman's sake, but he has come for the sake of the, this whole people, of the Samaritan people. Because 
whatever the, the Jews felt about them, God had not rejected them. And this woman is the first fruits of a harvest among the Samaritan people. A harvest, by the way, if you read the book of Acts, is still continuing. And Jesus tells his disciples that, you know, wait in Jerusalem uh, for the Holy Spirit to come on you. You'll receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then he says, in Judea and Samaria, in all Judea and Samaria, it's like he sees them as one. This is one, now one place, one unit. Philip goes to Samaria. Peter and John go after him. They see a tremendous revival there. So the harvest is only just beginning. But she's the first fruits, and she hurries back to town and tells everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Now this is where I think, if she had such a bad reputation with all the other townsfolk, how would they have reacted? I, I kind of imagine them saying, well, you know, we already know everything you did. We don't need a prophet to tell us that. Would they have all gone running out on the basis of her testimony? I, that just, to me, doesn't quite add up. But anyway, that's, that's my thought. That's what happens. So she tells them about this, about Jesus and what he said. Come and see a man. And they do come, and they urge him to stay. And over the next two days, many of them come to believe that he is not only the Jewish Messiah, but the Savior of the world. What a remarkable revelation that is. He's the savior of the world. He, they actually saw that before many of the Jews did. So Jesus climbs over this wall of hostility that separated the Samaritans from the people of God, and he makes them part of his bride. Where others saw Samaria as an area to be avoided, he sees a harvest field. And as far as Jesus is concerned, there is no such thing as a no-go area. He is the fruitful vine by a well whose branches climb over a wall. And as we abide in him, we are now those branches. So here's the question this morning. What are the walls that he wants us to be climbing over as we emerge blinking from this year or more of restrictions and, and not being able to see people? Maybe this is a time to be growing some new branches and to be climbing over some walls. So next Sunday, for example, Caleb, I think, is going to be leading a prayer walk around chapel fields. Maybe that's a good place to start. So we need to leave it there. Um, just to say that in John's gospel, I believe that Jesus is being presented not only as the Jewish Messiah, but as the divine bridegroom come in person. And I think this story of the woman at the well is, is a part, is an episode in that long-running story that we are still a part of. And as we go on now to share in communion, it's clear that this nuptial theme is there in this action, this act of sharing communion too. This is, this is when, this is commemorating, uh, because the t Jesus inaugurates this new covenant uh, in his own blood. He establishes it in his blood between himself and his bride, the entire people of God redeemed into one. And, and so each time that we participate in the bread and the wine, we are, we are celebrating this covenant by which our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God and incorporated into his 
bride. And as such, we are, we are also anticipating the great wedding supper at the end of the age when the bridegroom returns. And of course, that we see the bride being unveiled in Revelation 21, 22. The, the revelation, the word is apocalypse, which literally means unveiling. And what we see right at the end of Revelation is the unveiling of the bride of Christ. The story comes to its climax. Uh, 